0: Welcome to the mini break, your day podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world today is Monday, March 27th. Unfortunately, I do have to begin today's episode with an apology to all of you listeners for the lack of shows on this feed over the past two days. Certainly, things have remained busy. At the 2023 Miami Open, we've reached round four of the women's singles draw, a day behind on the men's side. Nevertheless, we've gotten to see Just about every top seed in the field play at least once. As such, we have plenty of things to discuss here on today's show. And as an additional promise to all of you listeners, publicly shame me if I do not have you caught up to speed by the end of today. Not only will we have this podcast on the feed, we will also have an episode recapping everything that happens on Monday at the 2023 Miami Open as well. Now, whether that show will be posted late Monday night here on the East Coast or early Tuesday morning will really depend on the sleep schedule of super producer Daniel Westoff. Nevertheless, over the next 24 hours, I promise all of you Crack Rackets fans will feel up to speed on everything that's happened in this second half of the Sunshine Swing. And in terms of how I want to focus today's conversation, it is just going to be me steering the ship. I want to have a 30,000-foot view look at where things stand in these Miami Open singles draws. I want to look beyond the top contenders as well because I don't know how much— New information can be offered to all of you listeners in a discussion about Carlos Alcaraz, Arena Sabalenka or Elena Rybakina. Certainly you look for Alcaraz. He's the class of the field right now. He's yet to drop a set in this sunshine swing. Every time you watch him play, there's at least 17 minutes of mesmerizing, breathtaking tennis coming off of his racket and He's the top dog. The field runs through him. He's the defending champion at this event. He's the world number one right now. He just won Indian Wells without dropping a set. There's your synopsis of where things stand with Carlos Alcaraz, who was dominant in straight set wins over Facundo Bagnus as well as Dusan Lajovic. Alcaraz is Alcarazing, but who are the players who have the opportunity to challenge him on the men's side? Whoever the players who have stepped up here through their first few matches of play in Miami. Similarly, on the women's side, look, Elena Rybakina just beat Arena Sabalenka in the Indian Wells final. They also played in the Australian Open final, given the fact that Iga Świątek is not in this event in Miami. Those are always going to be the two names that start any conversation of who are the top contenders on the women's side. But I think we've seen a lot of non-conventional yet not unexpected names emerge in this hunt for the 2023 Miami Open women's singles title. Now, I do implore all of you here at the start of the show, go to David Kane, who of course is a frequent guest here on this podcast. Go to his Twitter feed at dktwns. Read everything he's writing for Tennis.com this week. He's had opportunities to speak with Anastasia Potapova, who is going to be a major topic of discussion here on today's show. He's had the opportunity to speak with just about everyone. DK's on the grind. He's back on the beat. It's always better when he's on the grounds. We all feel more informed as tennis fans. I'm imploring you to read everything he has written, but in particular go read his piece on Potipovo, who he had the chance to uh, sit down with and who of course we have to discuss here on today's show following her run uh here in Miami in particular to see her knock off Coco Gauff in three sets in the fashion that she did. It was a delightful match. It, you know, epitomizes the athleticism required to succeed in the modern game. And so, again, I know who the clear-cut contenders are on the women's side. If it's not one of those two names, who might it be? Potapova, someone I want to get into, but of course, there are plenty of other players who have impressed. And again, more broadly, my goal here today is to catch all of you up to speed on everything that has happened at the 2023 Miami Open. Of course, Miami, though, is not the only place where tennis is happening in the world right now. You've got a lot of other action across levels in the tennis world, whether it be at the collegiate level. Of course, we're so excited to have broadcasts every Friday and Sunday on ESPN+, Plus, ACC, SEC Network+, to highlight all the action happening in those conferences. We've got our Big Ten broadcast on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel every Sunday as well. Episodes, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern time, breaking down all the Division I men's and women's action. So if you are intrigued by anything happening in the college tennis world or you want to know who might the next Danielle Collins, Jennifer Brady, Ben Shelton, Cam Norrie be – you can follow along with us each and every week, whether it be on our Great Shot podcast feed, our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, or one of our many college tennis broadcasts. Of course, if you are more pro-centric, go to the Great Shot podcast feed every Monday. We have a new episode from our contributors, Damien Kust, Jakob Bobaro, breaking down everything that happens at the ATP Challenger level. I know it was a jam-packed weekend of Challenger finals on Sunday. Damien and Jakob break it all down on this week's show, of course, Again, if you're looking for updates, perhaps at the junior level, I will always implore you to go read Colette Lewis, who is on the grounds at the 2023 Easter Bowl. I have not sent the text yet. I will be sure to do so to get the GOAT on the podcast to talk about who are the young up-and-coming names we all need to keep our eyes on. I believe Nganui just won back-to-back Girls 18s titles, Easter Bowl, and then I don't know if it's in Carson or the B1, whatever comes before the Easter Bowl. That's a story. Someone wins back-to-back top level junior events. It's a name you gotta be on the watch out for. And so again, I'm gonna have Colette Lewis at some point on the show. I will send her the text today. Hopefully we have her on the show at some point this week. Although look, the goat is busy. So obviously we you know, I don't wanna take her time for granted. I will be sure to keep you all updated on any I suppose, scheduling updates regarding that podcast. But again, we got you covered here at Cracked Rackets, whether it be the pros, the college level, the juniors. We want to cover it all. You can find all of our content available on our website, crackedrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to all of our podcasts, which you can find wherever you listen to your shows. A shout out, of course, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support of this mini break podcast. For all of the latest and greatest items, go to tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. All right, all of that established. Let's get into today's conversation. If not the top seeds, then who is going to walk away with the 2023 Miami Open singles titles? Let's start on the women's side of things because I think the names... For you know, this Miami Open event here, I would say it feels a little bit more like 2021. It feels a little bit more like 2019, well, not 2019, maybe a little bit 2019, but 2020, 2021, early stages of pre Ashley Barty 20, uh, or excuse me, pre Ashley Barty 2020, 2021, where it's just like, okay, or non Ashley Barty events, leave it all in, super producer Daniel Westhoff. You get what I'm saying, the broader parody era where you're just not exactly sure outside of maybe in Ashley Barty or in 2019 yeah a Serena Williams in this case we have Rebecca and Sabalenka but outside of that who might else emerge as a threat to capture this 2023 Miami Open title I don't know if I'd put Anastasia Potapova on that level quite yet but I'll tell you what the soon to be 22 year old is delivering herself a birthday week to remember and you look for Potapova who turns 22 on March 30th, former world junior number one, now 44 and 23 over her last 52 weeks, up to a new career high, number 22 in the live rankings. She's into the quarterfinals here at the Miami Open. I believe it's her second career 1000 level quarterfinal. I mean, she's been remarkable all week long, whether it was victories over Martha Kostyuk, over Coco Goff. Now she gets the victory today and I'm recording this a little later here on Monday, so I suppose I have the benefit of hindsight. Some of these extra results are gonna sneak in here, but you know, in the round of sixteen, she knocked out Jung Chin wen today, four and six and you know what's been so impressive. Obviously, you look for Potapova, where coming off of an event where she played Jessica Pagula extraordinarily tight at Indian Wells. She won a title earlier this year in Linz, and you know ended last season really strong with runs to uh, the uh, excuse me Prague final in the summer and Klucznikowa semifinals it's just all starting to add up a totality of things for Anastasia Potapova. You see her growing more and more comfortable in her game in each and every match that she plays. And I think the underlying thing that Potapova has always had going for, and she's someone we've discussed quite a bit here on this show over the years, is the athleticism, is the movement, the fluidity out of the corners. You can't fake that sort of athleticism. And again, Watching her match against Goff in particular, I haven't had the chance to watch the Jung Chin Wen highlights, so I'll be sure to go talk more about that match on our second show here today, but watching the Goff match in particular, You know, Potapova is maybe one of five players who could hang with Goff physically in the outer thirds for the multiple 10, 15, 20-shot rallies we saw throughout the course of that match, and look, Potapova was down a set and a break, and I know that first set was very back and forth, and obviously Potapova had her opportunities to take that opener. One could argue Goff probably should have lost the first, probably should have won the second, but boy, again, the physicality was never in question. She was ready for the two-and-a-half-hour battle. Each and every point, that fight was the same from Anastasia Potapova. Of course, the fight was immense from Coco Goff as well. And to see Goff scrap out that tiebreak, to see Goff, you know, be pushed on the defensive so frequently and yet continue to dig her way out of corners, put just enough topspin on her ball uh, to reset things to neutral, to see her play Potapova Even if not, you know, maybe slightly winning that exchange backhand to backhand, and to see how exceptional Coco Goff is in turning into her backhand wing now. She's always had that going for her, but, you know, the backhand is now not just good, it's an unequivocal weapon. And if you give her time to turn into that backhand, her ability to drive the ball through the court, cross court, follow that ball into the net, and put the first volley away to the open court, it's become a lethal combination for Coco Goff. And yet, to get full circle here, the physicality of Potapova took that away and the drive Potapova produces on her groundstrokes more than anything else and it's very accentuated not to get too technique talk here. I know I don't often talk technique and I try not to nerd out too much for all of you listeners because I try to reserve that. I, you know, Again, I try to save those technique talks for when we have others here to disagree with my assessments. I, I don't claim to be aware of what the – perfect flawless technique is. I certainly think Novak Djokovic's backhand looks aesthetically flawless. Roger Federer does on the forehand wing, aesthetically flawless. But of course, if you play that open grip, your timing and your racket speed has to be so immense. That's why it's so difficult to replicate. Anyways, we're in technique talk here on the mini break today, here on Monday. You see how well Potapova drives through the ball, and it's most accentuated in her follow-through over her shoulder. I mean her ability to get outside of the ball, to fully extend her arms in her ability to drive through that shot. And again, you see that accentuated with how dramatic the follow-through is over her shoulder. You see that extension manifested in the length of her ground strokes. And again, she ate the Coco Goff topspin up. It was a bad matchup for Coco Golf because that ball sat up in the strike zone. Potapova got to drive through it, bunt down, know that the Coco Goff topspin would, when she was trying to be aggressive and take a ball on the rise, would keep that ball inside the baseline. Potapova also just had more juice in the forehand-to-forehand exchanges. And Potapova, what made Potapova so successful in this match was her ability to push Coco Goff deep into that forehand corner. And then when Goff would throw up that high top spin loopy forehand down the line ball to try and drive herself ti- uh, by herself time. And you know, the reason you go high and loopy down the line is a, it's really hard to take that backhand on the rise. B it's really, it's even harder to take that backhand on the rise back down the line behind Coco Goff. And so C, you know, the target Potapova is going to try and target if you, uh, going to try and hit to. If she's going to try and take that loopy ball early on the rise, she's going to try and target the open space that is the side, that Coco Gauff backhand corner. And as such, because Coco Gauff such an exceptional athlete, she has that ability to dig herself out of that forehand corner, hit the on-the-run backhand with enough depth pace to work herself back into the point. She did that at times because of course she did. But Potapova was relentless in keeping pressure on that combination by taking that backhand early on the rise. And because she does drive through the ball so well, the depth she was able to generate, it wasn't always easy for Coco Goff to dig herself out of corners. And again, this was an immensely physical match. Goff had her chances certainly to get off the court in straight sets. Both of these players did a really good job of attacking one another's second serves. Again, this was essentially ground stroke game tennis unless you landed a first serve. Potapova won the forehand-to-forehand exchanges, and that's what makes – you know, the technique for Potapova is so effortless. Now, I do think if you can play with overwhelming pace, get that ball into her forehand pocket, yeah, you can generate more errors from that forehand wing. I think she's pretty darn steady from that backhand side, even if she will – You know, any unforced errors that come off of her racket are acceptable errors in the sense that she is trying to be aggressive off of that backhand wing. I don't think she's too reckless ever in trying to pull the trigger down the line. The athleticism, the technique, the effortless power, and again, it's power that drives through the court as well, that puts you under pressure – There's a lot to like about the game of 22-year-old Anastasia Potopova, who, by the way, over her last 52 weeks, she's top 10 in break percentage amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. Anastasia Potopova currently ranks fourth. She's breaking serve 45% of the time. You look for her 2023 specifically, you know, 43.5% here this year. Come on now. That's exceptional tennis, and it's indicative of what we have seen from uh, from. Potapova, excuse me, particularly on these hard courts. I mean, you look at her record, 44-23 and 23 overall. She's winning 66% of her matches. We have a two-thirds rule alert, folks, but 15-7 here in 2023. More broadly, you look over her last 52 weeks on hard courts, 26-15 and 15 overall. Again, really good wins here in 2023 over Goff, over Kostjuk, over Ivan over a Petra Martic, the weapons of Julia Nehemiah. You Know Potapova able to hit through them on an indoor hard court in Linz. Potapova is unequivocally a top 25 athlete. She's got the weapons now to not have to make every match so physical, to make life easy for a little easier for herself. And then again, that ability to just take that backhand early on the rise, particularly as a return, it's special. And so Potapova is in the mix now. I don't know if. Her high, you know, again, is she athletic enough to have tier one upside moving forward? Absolutely. She could just, you know, that ability to survive. Now, are her weapons as overwhelming and perhaps evident, noticeable to the eye as a Jung Jin Wen? No. As a Marta Kostyuk, even? No. Well, that's an interesting proposition. Where do you put—you know, again, I would like to see this matchup on a clay court because I do think if Coco Golf's ball can get a little bit higher on Anastasia Potapova, that makes life a little bit more difficult for her. I want to see her movement a little bit more on clay courts, though it is worth noting Anastasia Potapova in her career at the tour level on clay courts, uh, 33-18 and overall. She won a title in Istanbul last year, made a final in Moscow back in 2018. (sighs) I mean, she's really good. Again, she's very good at everything. I don't see a discernible weakness other than the forehand backswing can get a little big, but just a little bit. Is she in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club? No. Is she in the Simona Halep Track Meet Club? Absolutely. Highest echelons of Tier 2, maybe 24, 25, 26 if she beefs up the, you know, the second serve in particular. Maybe she gets to that bottom edge of Tier 1. Like... Would it shock me if you know, again, it's a better a much better version of a a more fluid version of a Kudermatova, maybe. No, because Kudermatova's got the first serve. That's not the right comparison. It's not Casakina though, because it's far more line drive powered, even though the percentage wise, the success on the return, struggles on the serve, and yet she she's got the line drive of Kudermatova with the consistency and fluidity of, of a Kasakina. That makes no sense, except for to me in the sense that, like, yeah, living 7 to 14 in the rankings for her throughout her prime with maybe an appearance at, like, 5 or 4 if she makes a big run to two slam semifinals in a year, that feels like a very possible outcome for Anastasia Potapova, who's already, again, 22 in the world. She hasn't even turned 22 years old yet. I'm not ready to put her in that Tier 1 quite yet but I know she's going to be very good for a while. I, I would put her as a clear-cut tier two player if you're doing the future tiers, right? If you, you know, I think Goff's going to win, or Sviantek obviously is going to win many more titles. I do think Coco Goff's going to get one. Obviously, Rabak and Sabalenka were on that list. They already got theirs. I would put Junction when on that list. <sighs> no, I wouldn't put, I don't know. I guess Potapova, Kostyuk. Anisimova right now are like rounding out that really interesting tier two, but maybe with a little bit more, you know, like Popova has been the more consistent of the two. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm 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 very intrigued. I'm curious what many of you think about her upside because she does hit the ball big. It's not elite action on the ball. It doesn't overwhelm you the way a Sabalenka or a Rabacana does. The weight of their shots, and yet it's consistent depth. And if she has time, she springs through the ball down the line. It's very good line drive power. Maybe it's Pagula esque. Maybe that's the. Highest a highest aspiration. Maybe that's like the the player comp. If there was a 538 player model for who is this person's career and game style and statistics and metrics project their future to be. Maybe it is a slightly springier Jessica Pagula. And Pagula's been three in the world. Yeah, I like that. Slightly springier Jessica Pagula. Maybe that's the obvious comparison that's been sitting there the whole time. But let me know what you think at AL Gruskin. Potapova certainly has been one of the biggest stories of the week, though. And again, to see her come so close the last week at Indian Wells to knocking off Jessica Pagula, to see that momentum captured, brought here, where again, wins over Kostyuk, over Goff, And yes, with the benefit of recording when I'm recording over Junction Wen as well. Quarterfinalist for Potapova, and we'll talk more about that Junction Wen match again on our next episode here on Monday. But would I put Potapova in my top five contenders looking at the draw? Well, we have the actual Jessica Pagula still alive, so she probably has to occupy a spot I've talked so much about Bianca Andreescu, but I think Andreescu probably has to be number four on this list because, by the way, with number three being Krejcikova, who is going to take on Arena Sabalenka, that might be the match of the tournament. It was funny to hear Krejcikova, who spoke with David Kane, an article all of you need to go read on tennis.com about why she doesn't want to be left out in that you know new big three discussion, why she would make the argument it's a big four and... Again, she beat Sabalenka three sets Middle East, loses to Sabalenka round of 16, three sets at Indian Wells. Now gets Sabalenka again here in the round of 16. Krejcikova, 6-3 six and three win over Madison Keys in round number three after a 3-2 and two win over Sasnovich. Those are two top 50 players, two top 40 players in the first two rounds for Barbara Krejcikova, and she's yet to drop a set. I mean, again, her ability to drive through the court, her ability to finish points moving forward, her ability to seamlessly and effortlessly absorb pace. And then, in particular, why she fa- fares well against the Sviantec's, Rabakina's, Sabalenka's of the world is her return of serve. It's not necessarily – that it, it, it doesn't overwhelm you. It's not the break percentage itself that overwhelms you. It's just the consistent depth on the return from Kratchikova. She returns like someone who has to target her returns perfectly because that's so essential in doubles. She hits the return of serve like she's the number one doubles player in the world because she is. It's just, again, any target she needs to hit, she's capable of hitting with consistent depth and placement and again, it's that technique, that ability to both absorb your power, redirect it, and then the confidence and willingness to move forward to take time away from you. Krejcikova has got to be number three. Not much new to add there. I mean, andrescu has got to be four, right, with her victories now. And she's had a gauntlet of a draw, too, uh, certainly in name value. a Kanu, who she gets through in three sets. Then the three-hour marathon against Maria Sacri, which she gets through in three. You know, she played a tight match, four and four, against Sonia Kennan. Although, how tight was it with Andreescu being up a set in 4-1 in that second set? You know, Andrescu only broken once throughout the match. She wins it in an hour and a half, again, four and four. Her pace just overwhelmed Sonia Kennan. Anytime Kennan didn't land the first serve, that second serve, kick serve, and Andrescu's ability to take that ball early on the rise, her backhand down the line returns a joke, and she's hitting it so confidently here on these Miami courts. She's hitting the first serve well there's not a single approach shot or a single plus one strike she can't hit on either the forehand or backhand wing. She showed off all the weapons, she showed off the speed to absorb the drop shot of Sonia Kennan in particular. She did a great job of hitting behind Kennan and, you know, Kennan who when the ball's in front of her, when she's on her terms, strikes the ball as well as anyone on the WTA tour. The tools, uh the toolbox for Sonia Kennan as immense and depth and deep as any toolbox for any player in the women's game when she's right. and Drescu took it away from her by constantly hitting behind Kennan or at the first serve goes out wide. The first forehand is going to the open court. You're going to hit that first ball on the full sprint. Um, and then that second ball is going behind you because Kennan, again, had was so far off the court, had to recover. Just and Andrescu had such easy lanes to work with. Again, only faced one break point. Now she was broken on that break point, but Made all of her service games look routine. Got Kennan down big. Now, Kennan did mount a comeback. Finally did get that break back to narrow things at 4-2 in the second set. But by then, it was too late. And again, Andreescu striking the return so cleanly right now. Look, the draw opened up for Bibi. She opened it up for herself, knocking out Maria Sakkari in round number two. But given a Ekaterina Alexandrovas win over Belinda Bencic now, you know, you look for Andreescu, she wouldn't have to face, or, you know, at most, the, ne- the next top five seed or top 10 seed she would have to face would be in the semifinals. There are only two top 10 seeds, three top 10 seeds, excuse me, remaining in Pagula, Sabalenka, and Rabakina. Things have opened up, and you look for Bianca Andrescu, who with this run, back up to number 27 in the live rankings. You look for Andrescu again, needed this. When was the last time she won a three-match? Well, she won three matches at Hua Hin uh, earlier this year. Prior to that, the last time she had won three matches in a single event was in June when she made the final of Bad Hamburg, and she only won three matches three times uh, at events last season you look for her now, last fifty-two weeks, twenty-nine and nineteen overall, nine and six here to start twenty twenty three, but you know, losses to Rabakina, to Shviantec, to Kuder Matova. Yes, there was the rough stretch in the Middle East, but Andrescu has come roaring back here in Miami. A strong reminder of her form and again, twenty-nine and nineteen, and she's top thirty in the world. Kept herself in the mix, 22 years old, right? And can still play any event she wants to play. Doesn't have to worry about wild cards anymore, no. Bianca Andrescu more than anything, to see her play five and a half hours of tennis through her first two rounds and, again, be so routine against Kennan, get off the court in an hour and a half. Very winnable. I I think Andrescu has to be fourth on the list. I think it goes. Rabacana, excuse me, Sabalenka, Rabacana, just because of the rest, the two, three sets. Although, let me tell you, to watch her get through that match against Paula Bedosa, to see the firepower down the home stretch, to see her just pace overwhelm Bedosa in the end, who was moving so well, redirecting things so well. It's the best match I've seen Paula Bedosa play in about a year. And yet Rabakina, her power overwhelmed Bedosa. You know, again, she was able to just keep swinging big, able to find the big return whenever she needed it. Anyways, Rabakina's two, Krejcikova three, 1-3, 1-3, and going to play in the round of 16, just a reminder. and rescue 4. Uh, do I go Potapova, 5? I think I probably do. Yeah, I, especially because she got through the power tennis of Jung Chin-Wen. And by the way, Junction Chin-Wen, out for a month, was playing much better tennis, even if it was definitely streaky, watching her match against the middle of Samsonova. You want Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Those are, by the way, your two... Next entrance, if Samsonova can somehow find a way to a major title, I'm not saying she will, but she currently has weekend privileges at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club and then Junction Wen again, will eventually be a member. I'm fairly certain about that. It's when, not if. And so, yeah, she can come hang out there as well. That was a really fun match, a really fun second set. And then Samsonova went up a break early in the third. But Junction Wen, it's it's not just the power, the effortless serve it's how well she moves in the corners and that ability to get to her corners with the power she possesses. She's dangerous from any position on the court. She's so steady on that backhand wing. The forehand gets slap happy. But God, the athleticism, power combination. It just reminds me of when I would watch Sabalenka three, four years ago. You just, you know it when you see it. She has all the pieces. It's just about putting them together. And yet Potapova beat her. So I'll go Potapova five, but you know, again, Petra Kvitova served really well in her straight set victory over Donna Vekic, and Vekic found her form, because I believe Kvitova was up a set to break. Vekic, I want to say, ripped off three or four straight games to level—three uh, straight games, I want to say, to level things in the second, and then, you know, again, they get to the breaker, but— Look, when Petra serves well, she can beat absolutely anyone. And you look for Kvitova so far here in Miami. You know, she's made 70% of her first serves against Vekic. She has faced four total break points in her wins over Vekic and Nuskova. Now, those are two better players, in my opinion, for her to play because it is so first-strike-centric. And it's, you know, you're not playing these long physical rallies. You don't have to worry about opening up the court against those sorts of players because, again, they also want to play so line-drive centric. So it's really who gets to look at the first strike first. And Petrkovic has been better at finding first strike tennis than just about everyone for about a decade now. Um, The Gracheva matchup here in the fourth round is going to be fascinating. And obviously, we've talked a lot about Vavara Gracheva, so I won't do another rant for you all today. But yeah, you look at the draw for Kvitova. Gracheva certainly is nice. She'd face the winner of Andrescu or Alexandrova after that. Very winnable match. That whole bottom section of the draw, which was loaded with Garcias and Benchiches and—or not Benchiches, but—no, um, no, yeah, I think Benchiches, Yeah, Garcias and Benchiches and Pliskovas and, you know, again, all these names now eliminated. Now Kretchikova and Sabalenka have survived, but this is a massive opportunities for the Andrescu's of the world, the— the of the world, the, you know, again, dare I say, even the uh, Serana Kirstejas of the world coming off of her f- huge week at Indian Wells. And that Kirsteja-Vondrusova matchup is definitely going to get physical. I'm excited to watch that one unfold. It's a really fun spot. Again, if I were to do my top five contenders on the women's side, I'd go Sabalenka one. Honestly, I'd go Krejcikova two. I just don't know if Rabakina is going to have the gas to get through both of these back-to-back Sunshine Swing events, particularly after going back-to-back three-setters, although you do have the day off here. I'm going to go the winner of Sabalenka, Krejcikova, is my number one. The other players, two. Rybakina, three. and Rescue four. Based on what I've seen with my eyes, she's just moving so well. She's moving the ball so well. She has weapons, can just match up a little bit with everything. And every match is played at her pace, as I alluded to yes on our last show, whenever that was. And rescue for uh, Pagula or Potapova. Out of respect, Pagula five, but. Potapova's right there as well. If I, I'm just going to go the winner of Sabalenka, Krejcikova, one, move everyone else up a spot, and then Potapova slides into that number five spot. So, yeah, I get six of the final 16 players. There you go. Those are your top five contenders. And according to the Tennis Abstract, Robakina one, Sabalenka, two, but it's because she has to go through Krejcikova, obviously, Pagula, three, Kvitova, four, Krejcikova at your number five spot. So, yeah, I mean, th- the, again, I think the numbers for tennis abstract still respect the fact that when ten, Petra Kvitova does serve well, she does have that ability to blitz you off the court. And for what it's worth, over the last fifty-two weeks, you look for Petra Kvitova in terms of her hold percentage. Uh, you know, again. Compared to the rest of the top 50 players, Petra Kvitova still ranks 7th in hold percentage on the WTA Tour, holding serve 76% of the time. We certainly saw that manifest in her straight set victory over Donna Vekic to advance to the round of 16. But that's where things stand on the women's side. Let's move over to the men's side of things. Carlos Alcaraz, as I alluded to, you got your update in the first three minutes. He's been exceptional. I joked about it with Pamela Maldonado when we had her last week as we were going to call a man meat moving forward. Yeah, it's a joke. I mean, again, the level of tennis he's capable of playing, the totality of things he can do, the improving depth on the backhand, the improving pace on the second serve. He's always hit his spots well. The kick serve ad side combination we stand so far wide on the ad side is just devastating because if he gets a first forehand – you're just in trouble. Like that is the most combination, dangerous combination in all of tennis. Alcarez has looked exceptional. But look, he's going to get a battle in Tommy Paul. And shout out to Tommy for backing up his Indian Wells results with a couple of good wins here in uh, Miami now, of course, the 12-0 stat against Spaniards. I don't really care about that. The big thing for me is he knocks off a guy who – a lot of similarities, a guy who had given him a lot of troubles over the years. We saw their five-setter in Australia earlier this season in Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, Tommy, the 3-5 and five win – You know, again, it's it's the, uh, the totality of things Tommy can do. He's so much more comfortable now turning into his forehand than he was even a year and a half ago. And that ability to hit the kick serve out wide, first forehand to the open court, it's become an elite pattern for Tommy. His willingness to move forward, his fluidity in the outer thirds, his ability to drive that backhand and absorb pace on that wing. You know, he's comfortable playing the slice. I really, though, all those different things aside... It's the focus. It's You don't see the lapses in concentration from Tommy ever. Or if you do, there are no more than one game, and he quickly bounces back the way it just wasn't when he was younger. And that's a testament to Tommy's maturing uh, maturity. It's a testament to his continued development, the work he's done with his team Tommy's top 10 uh, top 20 good. Like he just is and the we always knew he had that sort of athleticism. You see the weapons, the firepower. I didn't know his forehand was ever going to be this sort of weapon. It has become so. You look for Tommy, you know, again into Miami round of 16 now. He's up to a new career high number 18 right now in the live rankings. He's better than that, and we've talked about it. He's won over two-thirds of his matches over the course of the last 52 weeks. You look for Tommy, again, during this stretch, um, according to the Tennis Abstract yearly ELO ratings. Tommy Paul, uh, right now here in 2023, the 11th best player in the world with 2023 specific results. Yeah, that feels right. I mean, you look for Tommy here in 2023, 16-5 and five overall. He's holding serve 84.1% of the time. That's a top 20 number. He's breaking serve 25.3% of the time. That's a top 20 number. Now, again, after this Miami result, we'll switch to 2023 specific stats. I would imagine Tommy is one of just like four or five guys you can say ranks top 20 right now in both hold and break percentage, maybe six. Like it's him, Yannick. Carlos, Djokovic, Medvedev. That's going to be the list of well-rounded statistic guys over the course of these first three months. That's the list Tommy Paul's on right now. And he belongs there. 11th best on ELO ratings. He's that good via the eye test as well. And, you know, again, for what it's worth, he's beaten Carlos. We saw it happen. Albeit, you know, again, uh, last year in Canada, faster surface, 6-3 win for Tommy in the third I'm excited for that one. It's Tommy's home city. He's ready for this Florida heat. I mean, it's not his home city, but it's his home state. That, I mean, that's going to be sold out. The crowd is going to be electric. The athleticism is going to be off the charts. It is just going to be an exceptional round of 16 battle. So buckle the seatbelts, folks. That's going to be a fun one, which I believe must be happening on Tuesday, right? Because they played yesterday. So that's a Tuesday. That's got to be the Tuesday night match. Just book that now. But, you know, it's not just Tommy who I think, by the way, has to be a top five contender on the list now, because look, if Tommy can knock out, I mean, it's just like, who else would you pick? Because Carlos is the clear cut one. I won't do the Sinner rant for all of you listeners. Again, you know, my belief in him statistically, he's one of the four best guys right now. It's Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner in that order on every advanced metric list. You want to look at ELO ratings included. Um, I mean, Alcarez has to be one. Medvedev got the withdrawal, but with Manorino next and, you know, he, or excuse me, with uh, Quentin Hallease next, and he's not going to face a seed until the quarterfinals. Uh, Medvedev probably has to be two, although Hubi Hercats, who would, escapes in a really fun three-set match against Tenassi Kokonakis in round two. And by the way, yeah, Hubi should have won the first set. Kokonakis should have won the second set. Kokonakis 6-4 up in that third set breaker, the backhand return Hercott's hits to fight off match point inside in was just electric. And for Kokonakis to serve to the backhand in that moment, I mean, had so much success serving to that Hercott's forehand, had a couple of match point forehands that he missed as well. Credit to Hercott's for the pace he was able to apply and the depth that kind of drew those errors out of Kokonakis. But look, Hoobie, I love big match Just Everything's going to be close. Everything is tight, and he's going to keep attacking, and he's, again, going to come up with dramatic athletic. There's going to be something dramatic, something remarkably athletic, something you've never seen before. Hoobie's going to do at least one of those things each and every match. Such an entertaining player, even if he's not an unequivocal Tier 1 upside guy moving forward, obviously a former Miami champion. He's just fun. That Kokonakis match, the way the crowd got engaged, it was really, really fun. And so, again, credit to who before pulling through. I think he's got to be five on your list, right? If Medvedev's two, Sinner's three. Huracov has to be there. I don't have Tsitsipas on the list, who's going to take on Christian Green today. I haven't watched that match, but I'll talk about it later. Tiafo escapes. Oh, my God. Yasuki Watanuki had him. up a set and a break, but Francis did Francis things. Can he do it back-to-back weekends? I don't know. Fritz dominates Chappavall. I think Fritz has to be on the list. I think Fritz is four for me this week. God, did Taylor look good. And he's got a battle against Holger Runa, who, I mean, just worked. Diego Schwartzman really couldn't hurt Runa consistently. And, you know, Runa's willingness to continue to find his forehand and work on getting more and more aggressive with that ball, even in sometimes – even when there are times he really should be hitting the backhand because his backhand's exceptional. I don't know why he'd ever choose to run around it when he can do the things he can do with that backhand wing, but, God, to watch Taylor turn into... Anytime Taylor has a clean rip at the ball, there's just no limit to how hard he can hit it. And again, if he gets his hands on it, the depth he's able to generate, he works Shapovalov. And that's been a tough matchup for Fritz in his career. <sighs> I don't know. It's it's a really tough conversation on the men's side. I need to have David Kane on the show or Gil Gross. So I'm gonna bring a guest on to tomorrow's podcast. Maybe not this Monday night show, but tomorrow's podcast when the fourth round is set. Maybe we'll do a little pre-day episode. It's just someone tweet at David Kane and say, David, Alex really would like your presence on the Mini Break podcast. He requested it. Would you mind, please, as a fan? As a listener, I request your presence as well. He always responds well to that. So I would appreciate if someone did that. Um, I mean, Rusevori playing well, too. And that draws wide open now after Botick knocks off Casper, I'll get there in a second. Alcaraz, one. Medvedev, two. Sinner 3, so that remains unchanged. I guess Sinner 2, Medvedev 3, just on principle. Um, Yeah, I'm going to go Fritz 4 with the eye test. Fritz looked so good against Shapovalov. He had a disappointing ending to his Indian Wells. I think he would love the shot at Alcaraz in the quarterfinals here in Miami as well. Although, again, Tennis Abstract has Fritz 52.7% favorite against Holger Runa. You know, his ability to push Runa onto his back foot. When Runa is pushed onto his back foot, that's when some of his lesser habits come out. Although, God, the athleticism of Runa, his ability to find the outer thirds and really work Taylor around the court by spreading it with the angles he attacks. Again, Taylor's going to have to move physically, but his pace into that Runa forehand will give Holger some matchup issues. And Taylor is one of the rare guys who can play Holger backhand to backhand more than fine. (sighs) I'll go Fritz, four. I'm not going to go Tommy, five, but that would be a good pick. Rublev's kind of just cruised along. He gave Kasmanovic the business. I'll go Felix, five. on. Uh, no, I won't because Sarandolo's got a lot of points to defend. I think Francis would probably – I'd go Francis over Felix. I'll go Runa, five. Why not? Let's have some fun. If Runa can get through Fritz, set up a matchup with Tommy or Carlos, Ugh, I mean that top quarter, Carlos, Tommy – Holger Taylor are your th- four remaining players. All four seeds obviously went perfect to script. Could not have broken better. Two Americans, too. Tuesday better be packed on the grounds of Miami, even without Casper Rood, who, you know, continues his tough start to 2023, knocked out in three sets by Botic Vandesen Schulp my almost birthday brother. Shout out to October 4th, 95 for Botic. Um Look, Botick's just good, man. I mean, he just absorbs things. So he just takes away what you want to do. Casper wants to play high and heavy with the forehand. Botick says, nah, I'm going to take your topspin. I'm going to drive through that court. I'm going to mix in slices and just so many different off-speed things." And I actually thought Casper played a lot better. I thought Casper probably should have lost the first, or probably should have won the match. Excuse me, in straight sets. Obviously, lost the thread there in the second uh, down the home stretch and. You know, again, he's just a little too slice-happy with his backhand right now. I don't get it because he drives through his backhand well. I think he does an excellent job of hitting through that ball. I think he does an excellent job of opening up angles with it cross-court. I think he's fine driving it down the line as well. I didn't understand his eagerness to play the slice as frequently as he did, especially against a guy like Botic, who is never better than when things go off script. So, you know, again, I didn't love the game plan – I thought he played better though I thought he looked more physical I thought he was hitting the forehand well at times although still again a little bit streaky on that wing I don't know it was a weird match for Caspar It was a fine level, though. Again, I think it had more to do with Botick's execution down the home stretch. But I'll tell you what, if you're Emil Rusevori, who got the win over Taro Daniel to advance to the round of 16, eyes light up. This is a massive opportunity for Rusevori, who obviously we have been high on here for a while here at Cracked Rackets to get. To a quarterfinal at this 1,000 level event, Roussevori, with his win up to number 43, he wins another match. He's up to a new career high number 36. So this is the match. There, I you know I would lean with the Rusevori serve his forehand. Really, his forehand more than anything else is the biggest weapon on the court. He should win this match against Van de Sensculp despite being a 60.1% fit underdog, according to Tennis Abstract. If you can get Rusevori as an underdog on a DraftKings or wherever it is, some of you legally place your wagers, you should do so. I think Rusevori is going to beat Botic. I don't think it's going to be particularly close. Even though Botic can throw off speed, I just think on this court, you don't want to give Rusevori off speed as well because it's not a fast off speed, it's a slow off speed where he'll have time to set his feet. I love Emile with the upset there, and then Cinna Rublev. I mean, Cinna Rublev, Runa Fritz, Tommy Carlos. Those are three of your four top half round of sixteen matches. Popcorn, absolute popcorn. Clear your Tuesday schedule. I'm telling you what you're doing. It's watching all eight, uh, all four of those matches unfold. Uh, obviously, again, it's going to be a fun Monday on the men's side. You've got the aforementioned Felix Sarandolo match. Tsitsipas getting underway against a resurgent Christian Garin, who just hits the crap out of the ball. Uh, so looking forward to that one. Hachnov-Lechetka. lean lechetka in that match, right? Which is why you know Hatchnov's going to win it. Senego, who knows what's going to happen. A couple of Frenchmen in action. Beret, Halis taking on Americans, former All-Americans. Beret against Eubanks. Halise against Mackey. Medvedev back on court. Who knows what's going to happen in Herkot's Mentorino. It's going to be a good day, and we will be back here on this show. Again, I will record this podcast late on Monday night. It probably gets – no, he's super producer Daniel Westoff. He may post it Tuesday morning. Nevertheless, we're back on schedule, back on track in our quest to ensure all of you Crack Rackets fans are caught up on everything happening in the tennis world. Again, top five contenders on the women's side. Sabalenka, Krejcikova winner. Rabakina 2, Pagula 3, no, 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 Andreeski 3, Pagula 4, Potapova 5. On the men's side, Elkarez, Sinner, Medvedev, Fritz, he's looked that good. And I'll go Runa at 5. Again, it's a really fun top half of the draw. Four of the top five still alive in that top quarter alone. So, uh, excuse me, in the top half alone. So, buckle the seatbelts. It's going to be a fun week. Second half of the Sunshine Swing has reached its home stretch. We will be here each and every day to cover it all on this mini break podcast feed. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f of an energy job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.